You're listening to Across the Table, a healthcare private equity podcast brought to you by McGuire Woods. Across the Table brings you inside the conversation with the specialists and professionals of the healthcare private equity industry. Hello and welcome to our second installment of our Across the Table podcast. Your hosts today are Holly Buckley and Jeff Carcroll. I'm Holly Buckley. I'm the co-chair of our healthcare and life sciences group at McGuire Woods, and Jeff is the chair of the private equity industry team at McGuire Woods. And today we're joined by one of our favorite colleagues, Bart Walker. Bart is a partner in the Charlotte office of McGuire Woods in the healthcare group, and Bart spends a lot of his time doing healthcare transactions. Today we're going to be chatting about executing tuck-in transactions. Specifically, as the economy gets going again post-COVID, we foresee a lot of our platform companies looking to do rapid tuck-ins of providers who maybe haven't fed so well through the economic trauma that is the COVID-19 pandemic and looking at ways to kind of keep operating and affiliate with existing platforms who may have more capital and ability to continue to provide care. So today our discussion is really about how we how we execute on those transactions and how we can smooth the process. So with that, I'm going to turn over to Jeff. Yeah, when we talk about tuck-in transactions, we're generally meaning an existing platform, which could be private equity backed or not, but a platform that is acquiring smaller, usually, practices. And in this environment, there will be many smaller practices that are either struggling to pay their bills or will be interested in seeking the security of a larger organization. In doing that, it's often helpful to think through kind of some of the pathways of sourcing these deals, and that might be a good place to start. We'll cover some other aspects of how to more efficiently process those deals from a documentation and process perspective. But maybe the the correct place to start is sourcing those deals. Most platforms that are employing a growth strategy through acquisitions already have robust pipelines for acquisitions, both large and small. But in this instance, there could be a a different source of finding these deals. And, And one of the ideas that we've seen platforms employ is to use this opportunity to break into new relationships with intermediaries that are working with these smaller companies. They tend to not be the larger kind of blue chip uh, investment banks, but smaller intermediaries, whether uh, just pure business brokers or just smaller investment banks. Uh, Oftentimes those uh, intermediate size uh, investment banks will focus on a particular industry segment and they can be a very good resource for sourcing deals in, on the smaller end of the market, which there will be likely many of them coming to market as they need to become sellers. Bart, maybe turning the discussion a little bit towards efficiency, what are some of the factors that a buyer should think about in making these smaller acquisitions more efficient? Yeah, thanks, Jeff, and uh, delighted to participate with you guys today. I would say there are a few things people can do from an efficiency standpoint. The one thing we talk about a lot uh, in our shop is scaling the process to the size of the target. It's especially applicable for tuck-in acquisitions where they tend to be much, much smaller bites. And so instead of doing a full-scale due diligence effort in terms of legal or Q of E or accounting or billing and coding, you need to scale that process down to really just what's essential 
So that would be point number one. Point number two is in terms of process optimization, making sure you've got a dedicated team or at least a team that's well-coordinated. What you don't want to do is in the process of scaling down from platform to tuck in to lose something in translation such that something is slipped between the cracks. So those would be, I think, the, the two big points. The, the third that's more of an overarching concept is you really need to focus on what's most critical, and you need to look at every opportunity for how to cut to the chase instead of getting wrapped around the axle on every little rabbit hole you come across. You need to look at exactly what's material in the overall context of the transaction. So, Bob, That's one of the things Mark. you mentioned is scaling down the process. Um, and how can funds do that without, or platforms do that, without also ratcheting up the amount of risk that they're taking on? Yeah, I think there's a few things that they can do in terms of risk allocation. Typically, a tuck-in will be an asset purchase. So, ideally, you just have the protection of the transaction structure itself where you're leaving behind all the historical liabilities. So that's kind of point one is uh, structural separation from the target entity to the acquirer. N number two, I think you can talk a little bit more directly with management. Often in tuck-in acquisitions, it's more common to have direct conversations amongst all the parties where you can actually ask questions of management and their counsel altogether to try to cut out the middleman and minimize hours that are spent just trolling through data rooms. I think that can be helpful as well. Right, I would add that also since it's an asset acquisition uh, and, and especially since it's a smaller target, the buyer's often not needing as many of the contractual relationships that the target has. For, for example, uh, you generally not be needing their provider number, so you could walk away and leave that. There can be some tails on, on liability, but leaving that provider number uh, certainly helps. You're often not needing any of their payer contracts because the platform usually has those contracts with different payers already in place and likely better contracts in the first place. You may need a lease, but that's often about it. There's usually very few employees, and you're just hiring them into your existing practice so it really streamlines the amount of kind of third-party things that you need to go through from a process perspective and also limits the liability because you're not taking responsibilities under any of those contracts, which, which helps quite a bit. So we're talking about scaling down a transaction to right-size it for the deal. I think one of the other things that we've seen is transactions that are not even a transaction, right? So we're just we're seeing platforms wrap in physicians without necessarily also purchasing assets. Maybe, Bart, you can talk a bit about what you've seen there. Sure. So for the, some of the smaller practices, it, it almost feels less like an acquisition, more just like an onboarding of a new employee. Again, I think there's still some key questions you want to ask about that individual and their background, both from a professional standpoint as well as a liability standpoint and doing the usual background checks and exclusion screenings. But beyond that, depending on the size of the transaction, again, you should be able to get a pretty clean break from past history. That's a great point, Bart. Uh, we often hear those transactions referred to as no goodwill purchases, meaning the, the buyer's not paying for goodwill. But what that also often implies is that the buyer may be paying for hard assets. So if the seller 
has uh, purchased equipment that's going to be coming over. You would do evaluation or maybe just the depreciated book value of those hard assets, and that becomes the sole purchase price, but no kind of larger goodwill purchase. So you're, you're hiring an employee, buying some hard assets, and that's really about it. And what's the sales pitch to a physician? Why would they want to join a platform if they're not going to get any upfront purchase price? In any kind of smaller acquisition, one of the benefits that the seller is looking at is that the, the payer contracting is usually quite a bit better uh, on the larger platform. The providers are usually having some version of production-based comp, which means they're going to take, uh, say, 30% of collections on the services they perform, and there can be an immediate lift in that compensation just by joining that larger platform. I'd also say that sometimes, and again, this is more applicable to the, the COVID era, I could see us fast-forwarding a few months here and looking at some, if not truly distressed, some smaller practices that are under financial duress, and part of what they're seeking is financial stability in the form of a much bigger platform and somebody that has much bigger infrastructure to support them. It'll be really interesting to see how many of the smaller practices are chased into the arms of, of waiting suitors uh, in the form of PE-backed consolidators, or even the local hospital. Rewinding back to 2008 and the last significant financial crisis, we saw a combination of economic factors as well as the Affordable Care Act really start to push physicians to integrate with their local hospitals. We saw a huge wave of hospital and health system acquisition of practices. It will be interesting to see whether that also plays out here in the next several months. So going back to something Jeff said earlier or referenced earlier, which was around sourcing these deals, for the truly small, no goodwill deals, and these are less likely to be actually banked deals. So how can a platform go about building a pipeline for these types of tuck-ins? A lot of the tuck-ins for these platforms tend to be very regional, meaning uh, the platform has established a footprint in a particular geography, uh, say a, a, a city, and the tuck-ins are adding other clinics in, in rather close proximity to the main practice. And in that context, one of the pathways for really exploring this is to use their existing networks within the community, whether that is their, their existing physicians or dentists, but kind of charging them with doing a little bit of outreach, but uh, really tapping the local resources can be a very effective mechanism. So what advice would you have uh, would-be acquirers for the, for the next kind of two weeks, 30 days, and six months? One of the things that a acquirer could do would be to retool your acquisition documentation and process sequence, meaning uh, especially for platforms that do a little bit less of the smaller tuck-in acquisitions, they're usually accustomed to utilizing a more fulsome diligence request, utilizing more fulsome acquisition documents uh, that have more extensive reps and warranties and schedules. If you're really not taking as many things, your diligence can be shortened, which means that your diligence request shouldn't be asking for a bunch of stuff that you're really not going to need to be spending time with. And similarly, the, the purchase agreement can be much shorter. We will be disclaiming the assumption of uh, excluded liabilities, which covers a lot of the waterfront front of uh, potential exposure, 
but you can also slim down the representations and warranties on that basis and take some pressure off of both the, the, the process that the seller has to go through in, in regards to kind of having their counsel review and, and become involved in the drafting of these agreements. It can shorten the process for scheduling things, which a purchase agreement is often asking to have a lot of matters scheduled that you frankly probably don't need in a small asset tuck-in. So I would say getting your paper and process in line for these small acquisitions would be a good first step. And then, Bob, are there any of these tuck-ins that you would uh, advise a platform to stay away from? Are there any characteristics or specific facts that you think would be a kind of buyer-beware, declare type factor? Yeah, the, the things that I've seen that have killed transactions, especially tuck-in transactions, are almost, the reason they're very varied, but there's one commonality, and that is it usually results from something that you didn't know at the time you entered into the LOI or started negotiating with the other party. So it tends to be late-breaking new information that's of a material nature. This could mean competing interests in other facilities or practices or businesses which would either compete directly with the platform or its ancillary services or something that would take time away from, uh, in this case, the physician's full attention from working with this platform. It could be a serious overpayment issue, either a governmental overpayment or investigation. Those are the types of things that tend to derail deals I would also uh, add to that when a small platform in particular has had kind of regulatory hiccups uh, like uh, billing irregularities, more often than not, the one you find is not the only irregularity and that people are that are either sloppy or really trying to press the envelope in one area will be sloppy or press the envelope in other areas. So. When you see smoke, it's best to be careful and wary that there might be other smoke or other fire. So for a platform that has a very robust compliance program and automation and, and great training and processes, how important is it to filter out targets based on some of the items that you've mentioned where there could be historic compliance challenges if it's a true asset deal? versus to what extent can this be remedied on a go-forward basis and, and the, the buyer have protection through transaction documents and indemnification? You can get a lot of coverage through the contract itself. Um, usually these acquisitions are smaller. So if you have less go-forward concern, meaning on a go-forward basis in running your own business, you know that there won't be billing irregularities that you need to worry about. If you're only looking historically, especially with a smaller target, you can kind of put a fence around what could possibly come up from an order of magnitude perspective. You've got structural distance through not assuming any of those liabilities. There may be some successor liability, especially with the government, but in that instance, you've kind of put a fence around kind of the uh, more serious magnitude of what a problem could be, and you've put contractual mechanisms that would shift that back to the seller as long as you're not doing that in the face of kind of known issues, that can be a, a, a workable structure to kind of minimize uh, the, the exposure going forward. And Bart, what advice would you have for a smaller practice that's maybe struggled through this COVID-19 pandemic and is, is wondering what the future may hold? 
how would you advise them in terms of thinking about a potential affiliation and finding a, a good partner? Well, I would say first, ensure your own survival independently if at all possible. You're never going to have more leverage than if you are able to survive without doing a deal or without doing an affiliation. If you wait until the point where you really are financially distressed or under duress, then your options are going to be limited and your leverage is almost certainly going to be even more limited. Got it. And, and what should sellers look for in a potential partner? I would say more than anything, the the biggest variable that I see sellers looking for is kind of cultural resonance that they're going to be comfortable in the place that they're going to be joining. I've counseled many sellers, small and large, and price is certainly one of the components, but kind of knowing who you're dealing with, uh, having comfort that they're going to treat you fairly, that the culture is going to be workable is a big driver. And I, I've often told sellers in working with a particular buyer to watch how they are treated at this these early stages and recognize that kind of during the deal you have a lot more leverage over the the buyer than you will have on a post-closing basis and if the buyer is kind of pressing and using that leverage against them in that context then that's behavior that they're going to see again and they're going to see it again in an environment where they have they themselves have less, less leverage in the relationship. So uh, I, I would say generally be careful with who you're going to be doing business with. There are a lot of great buyers, great platforms, great private equity funds, and then there's rougher ones too. So do your diligence on the people that you're going to be partnering with is probably the biggest variable. Great. And just a, a final question. Uh, can you look into the crystal ball and, and tell us what you expect to see in the next three to six months from a transaction flow perspective? My view on the next three to six months is as follows. What we've seen is transactions are not dying. They're not going away. I think right now in the near term, people are pumping the brakes and trying to figure out clarity on what the future looks like. That being said, we are starting to see people even now re-engaging and laying the groundwork for once the dust starts to settle a little bit they want to be able to to go and go fast. So I really suspect this will come back relatively quickly over the next, call it four to six weeks. And then towards the end of the year, I think we're going to see a second wave of increased M&A activity in the form of businesses that are now under financial duress that are now even more motivated to do that deal that they've been considering probably for some time. I, I don't think the acquirers will let this crisis go to waste. Agreed. This is the second piece that we've done in the Across the, the Table series on distressed investing. And the first one, when we sent it around, I was very surprised at the volume of response that we got, that a lot of platforms and private equity funds that maybe do less distressed investing recognize that there's going to be, just on account of the situation, there are going to be people that need to be sellers, and they're wanting to position them, themselves to be buyers if it makes sense. So I think we're going to see a lot of activity on this front. Obviously, the longer this situation goes where a lot of businesses are shut down, that will first put pressure on the smaller organizations, but will eventually put increasing pressure on the larger organizations. So one of the variables will be how long we have to go with a lot of these retail healthcare businesses being basically shuttered. Great. 
Well, great thoughts and an interesting discussion. Bob, thank you so much for joining us, and we look forward to the next Across the Table. We appreciate you joining us on this episode of Across the Table. To learn more about today's discussion or to contact us, please visit our website at mcguirewoods.com. We look forward to hearing from you. This podcast was recorded and is being made available by McGuire Woods for informational purposes only. By accessing this podcast, you acknowledge that McGuire Woods makes no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in the podcast. The views, information, or opinions expressed during this podcast series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily reflect those of McGuire Woods. This podcast should not be used as a substitute for competent legal advice from a licensed professional attorney in your state and should not be construed as an offer to make or consider any investment or course of action.